J-Cut, and this is The K-Cut, a cinema podcast for those who love cinema. I'm James. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the A-List Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Preferred to Say podcast, and I'm also a writer for Films Fatale. Who else is with me? I'm Rachel. I write for Films Fatale as well, and I am very interested in world cinema and lost movies. Where's number three? Oh, I'm, I'm right over here. Uh, plug three, I guess, as they would call me in, uh, in De La Soul. Um, Andreas here. I love art house and international cinema, but I love a little bit of everything. And that extends outside of the films themselves when it comes to film culture. Today's episode is going to be a little different. I am a compulsive collector of things. So anybody who knows me knows I have uh, not just movies, but I have a lot of movie posters, lots of memorabilia. Um, if I go to TIFF, I collect tickets all, all of that good stuff. So today, I wanted to talk about collectibles. You know, we're not talking about, like, the films themselves, but the things that we have collected, whether, uh, and, you know, this is avoiding special sets or whatever, so, like, Criterion and whatnot. This can be books about film or particular films in general. This could be, um, you know, ephemera, whatever it may be. And it's actually something that I'm very passionate about my um my master's thesis was on paper ephemera, so like drafts of screenplays, um, you know, correspondence letters between producers and filmmakers, down to brochures and, and film posters and that sort of stuff. So I feel like this stuff is very important when it comes to the history of film and the culture surrounding films. So guaranteed we have three cinephiles here and i know that i collect stuff so i can guarantee that both of you do as well so i'm very excited to discuss a side of film that i don't think it's discussed too often in podcasts like this so who wants to go first um i will i guess sure okay so um in this first half of the episode we're looking at film-related stuff that we have collected. So what is one of your favorite pieces of film memorabilia or a collectible? Well, okay, everyone knows that I'm majorly into classic Hollywood, and my very favorite star is Katherine Hepburn. So one of her most famous movies, one of her Oscar-winning movies for herself, was On Golden Pond. So one day when I was like 15 or so, I was floating around IMDb message boards as one did in 2006, And I saw a post by a man saying, I was there, and I remember that magical summer filming the movie when I worked on it. I won't identify the person, but, um, you know, I replied to his post, wow, that's really cool, and we got to talking. And after a while, he said, you know, I have some items from the On Golden Pond movie set that uh, should go to somebody who would appreciate them. Would you like them? So he sent me his set designs, um the script that he had annotated, um, some press clippings from the time, and copies of the telegrams that he sent to Catherine Hepburn and Henry Fonda when they won their Oscars. So I have this treasure trove at my parents' home of all these on Golden Pond items. And this summer, there was the threat of a forest fire, and my mother decided to move some of the precious items away. And she said, Rachel, what would you like me to say? And that was number one on the list, was that package of on golden bond i didn't i've known you for a few years and you've never brought this up yeah this is this is incredible which first off that's kind of wild you you have probably the best stuff out of all of us at this point well we'll have to be find that out the stuff was saved right 
So, oh yeah, there was no fire. It was just the risk of one. Oh, okay. So it was just like a hypothetical. Okay, thank yeah. goodness. For a split second, I was like no. really devastated for you. Um, no, that that's a fairly common thing to do in in the West when the summer gets bad. This is uh, this is an incredible revelation, and you know, obviously, we know how much uh, you love Catherine Hepburn. It's as much as I love Audrey Hepburn. So, um, you know, uh, James, you got to be the tiebreaker here. Anyway, point is that's absolutely incredible do you think you would want to continue this type of collection i know obviously the further back into hollywood you go the more expensive and difficult it would be to get more katherine hepburn stuff but are you content with this or is this just the beginning you know i don't like to accumulate stuff anymore so i probably wouldn't just because i move a lot and it's very hard to take everything with me but you know if the opportunity comes along i'll definitely take it yeah i mean it must be really hard because, you know, if it's back home with your folks, like you're obviously separated from this and it's such a such a monumental thing that you have in your possession. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm looking forward to the day when I can bring it into my own home. Wow. Well, we're, we're certainly starting off on a on a bit of a banger here. Geez. It, well, this is why I'm happy that I made this a topic for this week. I didn't expect something like this, you know, incredible. Uh Right, we we weren't expecting to have something that's like almost like mega valuable, like an actual piece of film <laughs> history. Yeah, that's 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 a high bar, Rachel. Let's see what I can do though. So, a couple of things. I, I've got uh, two miniature answers for this. I started before my um, before I kind of like took a few like different life choices. Uh, you know, trying to trying to move out that sort of stuff. I started collecting um, signatures, and I've got a couple of those that I purchased uh, with certific- well, certification of authenticity and whatnot. So the couple that I'm like most proud of, um, I've got this like it looks almost like a like a retro Hollywood one from Natalie Portman, who's like I like she's infamously elusive at TIFF to get this these type of signatures. So I guess that's the best way. I could have gone about it. I, I even like met her at Tiff a couple of times and I still didn't get a signature. So And you mentioned she's one of your absolute favorites. Oh yes, absolutely. But the other thing was on my bucket list, I've always been like obsessed with Ingmar Bergman and I've always wanted to be like kind of like in connection with at least some of his veterans because I mean he he was long gone by the time my obsession really hit its peak, unfortunately. So that was never going to happen. Outside of uh, meeting Liv Ullman at TIFF, which is also mind-blowing to me, um, I have... And this one, even though like Natalie's like, one, of, one of my favorites ever, um, this one almost hits even more for me. I have something from Harriet Anderson where somebody had like written her a letter and she wrote like a message back on like a printed out picture of one of her, one of her films. It's not a Bergman film. I think he wrote it, but um, it's not one that he directed and she stars in it. And it's got this little cute message like written in purple marker. Like, thank you so much for brightening my day, Harriet Anderson. It's the craziest thing. Like I, I can only imagine somebody got rid of it because they absolutely had to, which which devastates me, you know. Maybe they didn't appreciate it. I guess, but I can only imagine somebody was on hard times, you know. Yeah. Because um, that one, that one was a lot cheaper. Um, unfortunately, um, the, the second thing I was going to bring up, 
Um, and this is something that I feel like Rachel is definitely going to appreciate. And James, you might now too, because now you're a part of the Oscar club. <laughs> my, um, my dad was friends with a former Academy voter and he basically just said, screw it, have all of this stuff that the Academy sent me. So it's like all of these like screenplays that were nominated, like this is like before 99, oh, wow. I think was the cutoff point. Yeah. So it's like all of these screenplays. All of these soundtracks of like denominated soundtracks and scores or like denominated scores and, uh, you know, original songs. So I've got some singles as well. But the prized possession, and I know it's my easily the least favorite of this, but just to know that this exists. Obviously, The Godfather 1 and 2 did really well. And again, this was an Academy voter in the 90s. Um, Paramount really wanted The Godfather 3 to do well. So they created this elaborate massive like vinyl sized booklet of like these breathtaking set images and everything with like translucent paper in between like it's like this most detailed set of photographs and this was for your consideration so you could consider the godfather part three as best picture and out of everything because you know you kind of suspect everything else like you're going to get the screenplays and the whatever but to have something like this I don't care if I don't care about The Godfather 3 that much. That's one of the coolest things that I've had handed to me. Like That is cool. Oh, I adore it. Like, like this is like, as somebody who loves the Oscars, despite its flaws, as somebody who just loves cinema, it's, I, I, can't, I can't explain it more. Like, this is one of my favorite things that I have in my household. Wow. And you're the perfect person to have it. Yeah, and again, Oscars. So, I mean... That really gets me going. But something that I want to discuss another episode in full sometime is the idea of the cinematic book. You know, whether it's discussing movement, history, whatnot, that type of stuff would be amazing. And I feel like uh, this could be a potential foray into that because I believe, James, your your collectible is literature, correct? Yes, mine is a book. Sure. I'd love to hear it. What's up? So... I've explained this before, and most people who know me and know my taste in movies, I am a big fan of Robert Rodriguez. His book, Rebel Without a Crew, is one of my favorite books of all time. But what a lot of people don't know is he actually published a second book that's rare and out of print and was only available in Europe. Whoa. And the book is called Road Racers, The Making of a Degenerate Hot Rod Flick. And this is about his second feature that he made except this time with a Hollywood crew. And it was actually a television movie called Road Racers for a series for Showtime that was called Rebel Highway. And it was a 10-week series of 50s B-movies done in a 90s style. And what they did was they got 10 big directors to do... They didn't actually remake the films that they picked. They actually just took the titles and made original movies. And what had happened was, while... Desperado was put on hold because little backstory on that Columbia hit a snag when last action hero bombed at the box office. So they would kind of put things on pause, which kind of put his career on pause and he couldn't get to making a movie right away. So he was kind of working on other deals. You know, he had a few other pitches with other other companies he was trying to work on. Um, He actually just got asked to participate in four rooms. So he was working on that. And then he gets a call. One of the directors dropped out. And so they called him in to do one. And that director actually happened to be Wes Craven. And he left because New Nightmare got greenlit. So he just left the project altogether. And so he was called on to make this movie. And Road Racers was actually the last title left. And 
to try to figure out what he wanted to do. He actually called on uh, one of his old friends from film school to help him write it. And together they kind of wrote this, you know, story of this character called the dude who is played by David Arquette. And he's kind of like the too too cool for school anti-hero type. And, you know, it's kind of just a story about rebellion, except without the kind of, it, it lacked the parental view that a lot of those movies had. So it was literally just him. Like he's the villain, kind of the villain through and through. And especially when he leaves everybody behind and yeah, he wrote cause he's an avid journal journaler. He wrote this and I just started reading it and I've only got through the pre-production section. And it's really interesting to see him talk about how much he hates working within the Hollywood system because he had just made a movie by himself. Now he's dealing with being in the system and he's, you know, making comments about how he thought there was going to be too much crew, which apparently the executives laughed at him because every other director wanted more crew. And he was just amazed at all the money they were spending. And just, he wanted to just take the budget, go down to Texas and shoot a movie for the cheap. That was probably would have been better, but yeah, it was only available in Europe and someone, I was reading a book review and they, their theory was that because of how much he's, bad-mouthing the Hollywood system. They probably didn't want to release it in America. And I'd been wanting this book for years, but I could never see a price less than $50. And it's like, I don't know. I don't have the money to burn to justify buying a $50 book. And recently I was seeing it for as high as $150. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. I happen to be on a used book website and I happen to see it for the price of around 16 bucks. And I was wow. like, sold. And it actually happened to come from overseas. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. That's so yeah, I just it's it's really cool. It's also aside from having frayed edges, it's a really very well printed book. I mean, the pages are decent; they're kind of thick for a general book. You know, there's no stains on the pages. It's actually really good condition, so I was really happy to get it. But yeah, it's just really interesting when something like this, you know. I stumble upon it because I have another book that's out of print too, which is a book about Dogma 95 that's out of print as well. And I'm always amazed when books go out of print because I'm like, no, don't don't let them go out of print. They need to exist forever. It almost <laughs> makes me wish he like published journals from every single movie he's written. Just hearing him, just seeing all these stories and him describing what it's like working on all these films is very fascinating. Well, you never know when he might. That's so right up your alley. It's not even funny. Like, that's that's amazing so it's not even just like a book it's like a book as an artifact which is yeah well it's also road racers i think it's one of his best films and it's like one of his most understeen it was also uh one of the first if i think it was the first american appearance of salma hayek oh really because for the for a lot of people who don't know he's actually responsible for her breakthrough in hollywood because before that she was just getting acting gigs in mexico and he had seen her down there and he was actually wanted to cast her in Desperado. And he was talking about that. And he said he was having a hard time convincing the studio because, you know, they wanted to kind of do the West Side Story thing and cast a white actress and just kind of darken her skin. So he wanted to, like, you know, create an opportunity for a Hispanic actress. And uh, he said this was a way to create a demo reel for her to show to studios. And they took to it right away when he announced the casting. They thought it was great. She, they thought she looked great. She acted great and thought she fit the part well. And yeah, it's just, I don't know. I'm always fascinated with behind the scenes stuff. So it's like when I find books like this, it's like I just devour them because, you know, movies are great, but the process behind them is so amazing because when you see a film, it's almost like 
magic happened and you know you're not pulling the veil back to see what's going on behind the scenes it's like Penn and teller how they just deconstruct tricks and then show you their version of a trick and not tell you yeah so they basically like i'll never forget their sawing in half they spoiled like the archetypical one that every other magician does but then their one, you don't know. So it's like, well, great. You put everybody else out of business. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, movie making, it really is an illusionary experience, whether you're looking at the um, the accidental invention of it through Meebridge and his photographs, or even like a Georges Meillet who um, used it as, as a form of magic. So there definitely is, you know, they call it movie magic for a reason. I know it's like, you know, the other side of things, but in a sense, it really is an illusionary experience and seeing it deconstructed in such a way, I mean, it's always fascinating and that's another topic for another episode for sure. Yeah. It's also just interesting because I almost feel bad for him at some points because you can tell he's having a good time, but he, he makes numerous comments about how it's amazing, how he's kind of better than everyone. Like in Rebel Without a Crew, he talks about how there was um, a sound designer working on the distribution print for El Mariachi and things are out of sync. So they brought another one and he's literally like the union workers are like the union editors are supposed to be the best. Why are we hiring two? And why is one fixing mistakes? I could just do it myself and do it better. But I mean, this was a dude who was making like home. He, he came up with this really interesting digital editing system when he was 13 before digital was even a thing for the most part. So it was like, he has all this experience, but you know, working in the system, it's kind of rough for people who Cause I don't know that machine's really interesting because they're not known for being efficient and it's very glaring in various points of history. What amazes me is how everything we've chosen is so completely emblematic of our film days. Like it's <laughs> almost like stereotypical of us. Yeah. It's, it's perfect. But I, I've got to ask, is that going, going to be the case with the second half of this episode? So second half of the episode, I'm talking about merchandise so, you know, maybe clothing. Um, we could go the franchise route. So, like, you know, toys and action figures, that sort of stuff. Let's get into that that stuff. Do we have anything noteworthy that we really love wearing or, you know, prizing as our centerpiece in our living room? That sort of a thing. What do we have in terms of merchandise? Should we go in the same order? I can safely say my answer is going to be yes for being on the same theme. Okay. So this is not official merchandise, but it's basically the same concept. So oh, that's fine. Around the same age, you know, still deep into the classic Hollywood phase, a friend of mine for my birthday, I guess she must have found it on eBay or something, sent me two teddy bears that were in the outfits from the African Queen that Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn wore. So they had like little miniature like. 1910 ladies hat and dress and then they had bogey bogeys overalls and little cap and so i just have these two adorable bears that look exactly like an all-time classic movie and they're also with my parents but when i move into my own place they are absolutely going to be pride of place that's hilarious first off can you send me a picture of that at your earliest convenience yes I need to see this. That's amazing. <laughs> that, that's <kinda> hilarious. <laughs> I love it. Like that is a must see. And uh, I, I, I have nothing further to ask. I just need to see it. That's basically it. That sounds incredible. Oh yeah, my well, folks once almost threw it out by accident, and I flipped. Oh my god. Yeah. 
Oh, wow. I would have been angry. And I'm not, it's not even mine. I would have been furious. Like, no. <laughs> don't, I don't care. Even if you did not want it, I would take that in. Absolutely. <laughs> Having not even seen it. Um, sorry, I'm 32 years old. I'm still very easily amused. Um, for me, I have a lot of... Um, I'm going to try and stay away from the idea of books. But I do own a lot of you know, movie or TV related books particularly ones that are very niche, like not historical, but even like a director look and find. So you have to like try and find David Lynch's rabbits and all of his like, you know, eraser head and blue velvet, that sort of stuff, which is really cool. But I'm not going to go that route. I'm going to go the route that a lot of people know me for. Um, if you, if, even if you've just seen like a picture of me, there's like two things that I, I don't consider myself fashionable, but there are two things that I'm kind of known for wearing they're hats and graphic tees. And let me tell you, I have a lot of film-related graphic tees. Ooh, what so are some I've highlights? Got, yeah, I, that's a good question. I'll have to try and think of a couple because, like, when I say I'm on sites like Redbubble a lot, I, I'm on them a lot. <laughs> uh, more than I should be. That's a lot of money. But, yeah, I've got to think um, one of my favorites is I've got, like, like a quadrant of images from 2001 A Space Odyssey. They're all of like the eye at the end of the film, like all of the different colored shots, which I think is just like trippy to look at. And I do adore it. Um, I've got like a longer graphic tee of this one uh, design from Persona, where it's like overlapping faces. So they kind of like border around the logo of, of the film Persona. So Seeing that, seeing as though that's my all-time favorite film, that's always one that I like. Really adore having. It's not film-related, but I do have to bring up one of my other favorites. Um, if either of you have seen BoJack Horseman, I do have uh, the one about Diane's birthday party, like the the, the t-shirts that they printed off for everybody, but they screwed up what the, what it was supposed to say. Yes. I do have that. Yes, I love <laughs> it's, it. It's one of my favorites. Uh, but yeah, I could keep going on about like different. Um, different cinematic related t-shirts but if i had to pick just the one i'd go the 2001 space odyssey one so all i know is if we were to do this episode in half a year's time that answer could change i collect a lot of these so i love sporting what i love whether it's um movies tv shows video games music i'm again in my 30s but i still dress like i'm five so (laughs) (laughs) five or 15 both both at the same time james what about you what's your merchandise uh so mine andres you might actually be jealous of mine so i didn't buy it when it originally came out a few years i just bought it on a whim because i was like you know i have a feeling this is going to sell out soon so i'm just going to get it i have a copy of the upstream score color on vinyl wow Oh, i didn't even consider vinyl for this that's cool yeah it was a limited pressing it obviously came out when the movie was released it, along with the other merch. And I'm actually kicking myself for it. They actually had copies of that um, custom cover for Walden. They actually pressed a, they actually printed copies of the book with that cover and I didn't buy one. And I'm still just like super upset. I didn't cause they weren't even that expensive, but yeah, I happened to buy it. And then like, I don't know when it happened, but the, actually the website for the movie isn't even active anymore. And that store isn't active. So I was like, Oh cool. So I bought it. And it's funny, I've seen them on Discogs for like 100, 150 plus. And I was like, man, I'm glad I got this for like a normal price. Because 
yeah, no, I, I wouldn't have paid an exorbitant amount unless I was like super rich. But yeah, no, it's a, it's, uh, I haven't really had a chance to listen to it yet. I just bought it to kind of secure it. But yeah, I don't know. It's one of my favorite scores. So I was like, you know, I'm going to buy a physical copy of it. And it's funny because when he discussed doing the vinyl, it wasn't more or less being all about the sound of vinyl. It was like the ritual of putting a record on. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I also love the score because it's like how full the sound is and he just made it in logic, which is amazing. I was like, oh, yeah, just he sat on a computer and made the score. Yeah, he... um it's tough to talk about him now knowing that he's not a nice guy, but like, you know, strictly sticking to filmmaking, he's, he's an anomaly and a half. And I'm actually compiling my, um, my top 100 scores of all time. And you better believe upstream color is on there. Like it's so minimalistic, but like affecting. It's one of the best um, parts know. of the film. He taught himself oh, yeah. to write music for primer. He like, he didn't do that before. He literally just taught himself. I was like, Wow. Okay. I mean, he was a computer programmer, so I'm assuming he's really good at math and music is really just math. So, I mean, it kind of doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I guess. You know what? That's, that's a fair point. Um, what I do know wrapping up this episode is that, you know, we discussed literature, vinyl, posters, you know, t-shirts and some incredible artifacts. All I know is I kind of wish we had like seven hours but it sounds <laughs> right. like we've opened up a lot of episodes in the making because I would love to discuss like, you know, music related stuff. Oh, we got to definitely do a book one. I got several right? books about film. Absolutely. Yeah. But unfortunately, even though we have all of these open up, opened up opportunities for other episodes, we've got to, we've got to say goodnight to this one. So we are going to give you our weekly recommendations that we're going to pull out of thin air right away. But before we do that, we've got some protocols to get through. That's right. Our smorgasbord is next week, and they are going to be When the Wind Blows, Phantom of the Paradise, and George Washington. And then for our collective pick, we are going to have the Spanish version of Dracula, made in 1931, alongside Bela Lugosi's Dracula. Though we are technically discussing the Spanish version, I would highly recommend watching both. And if you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, we're under the KCOT. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you can. We appreciate every bit of attention we get. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of attention, we're going to give you our attention now. We're going to give you some weekly recommendations that we think you should check out because we think that these films are kind of the bee's knees to try and sound dated a little bit. Um, all right, let's go same order. Why not? Uh, Rachel, what is your weekly recommendation? Well, one of the memorabilia I wanted to work into this episode and couldn't, but is very treasured, is my autograph from Lauren Bacall, which I got by writing to her and being a very shameless... Again, this all happened when I was 15. So, um, yeah, so I have I have always adored Lauren Bacall. Her book, her autobiography is one of my favorite books ever, and I was very, very sad when she died. So I'd love for everybody to go check out her first movie, also her first with Humphrey Bogart, To Have and Have Not... It is one of those films where the chemistry just crackles and it's well worth a nice evening at home with. I think that's a, that's a great recommendation. Wow. Um, and another uh, final, final story to squeeze in there. I don't know if I have any uh, additional collectible related things on hand that I can bring up, but I can try and come up with a weekly recommendation, uh, a completely arbitrary one. Why don't we go with... 
Why don't we go with Selena Julie Go Boating? It's a nice and epically long film. Uh, considerably short, actually, if you're looking at the other films of Jacques Rivette. But a nice uh, over three-hour film where you're looking at two besties who are going on a journey and their adventure actually transcends the space and time of film itself and becomes this brilliant meta, you know, trek across the, you know, the, the use of cinema as a, as a landscape and art form. So it is a nice slice of, um, of the French new wave around the tail end of, or no, it's a nice slice of French new wave around the time the French new wave was kind of starting to face its, its bitter end. But Jacques Rivette, uh, again, this is one of his shorter films and it's over three hours, but I do recommend it. It's nice to get lost in. All right. So mine, you know, what? I talked about the book. I'm just going to recommend road racers by Robert Rodriguez just because it's one of his best movies. It's also probably one of the best TV movies I've ever seen. Fantastic. That sounds fabulous. And yeah, in case you didn't expect me to say it, I'm going to have to check that out. So thank you all so much for listening. Hopefully you got some great film recommendations, but also some great ideas as to how to expand your film, your film repertoire outside of just cinema itself. So maybe this will inspire you to start your own collection. Who knows? Either way, please let us know. And that was the K-Cut. Now we're going into the L-Cut. 